Now, the shotgun start in golf is full of mathematics. Um, there's a lot, of, a lot of setup work that we have to do in order to make a tournament work. So I'm going to demonstrate to you just exactly how we do a shotgun start here. Greetings and welcome to a special spotlight edition of the Shotgun Start. Andy, how are we doing? Brendan, I'm doing great. Uh, just excited to recount one of uh, my childhood heroes. There you go. So this is clearly a different, a little bit of a unique uh, recording. We will be back to the regular schedule on Monday. We will update you on the current events in golf news, but we thought this would be a little uh, appetizer to pin with a U.S. Amateur Weekend coming up, and it is brought to you by the USGA's Victory Club, which you can find at usopen.com forward slash victory club. That's usopen.com forward slash victory club. And the Victory Club is kind of their really sort of a strong fan initiative, get, get people behind the national championship, uh, offer some perks, be part of a fan community for, uh, you know, the toughest test in golf or the ultimate test in golf. And it's, uh, it's the way you can be involved with the championship this year without being there. You that's know? right. I was virtually involved with the PGA by, you know, sitting on press conferences. I, I almost <laughs> raised my hand a few times virtually, but <laughs> You know, one of the great things with the Victory Club is you can raise your hand. You can ask players, yeah. what's your favorite yeah. fruit, if you want. <laughs> you know, May, it might not get through, but you can do it. You can ask it into the void, and you can get the satisfaction from doing so. Do you know how uh, to properly tie your shoes? You know, these are questions <laughs> that you can ask some of the world's best players because, you know, they're, they're going to have virtual fan experiences like video Q&As. It, it'll be a lot of cool stuff as well. As discounts on merchandise the week of, discounts on your birthday. You know, yeah, we, they love we birthdays. Love birth they, they love birthdays more than I do, so they're going <laughs> to give you a discount on, on the birthday. They're all kinds of great stuff. It costs $0 and 0 cents to join. It's, that's it. It's, it's up front, so join the club. You get a discount on merchandise uh, for a week that, that no one will be able to go to. Kind of cool, I, I don't know, unique thing to land. Uh, merchandise from an event that will be, you know, walled off from fans. Uh, and then obviously around your birthday as well. So that's usopen.com forward slash victory club. Thanks to USGA for uh, supporting the podcast. So what is our subject for this spotlight today, Andy? It is none other than Bubba, the first famous Bubba in golf. I don't know if that's true, if he was the first famous, but he was definitely more famous than another Bubba. Uh, but Contemporary Bubba of his. Bubba Dickerson, the 2001 USAM champ, uh, who took the amateur world by storm that summer. He became the seventh player to win both the USAM and the Western Am, probably the two most prestigious uh, tournaments in the, on the summer circuit for amateurs. And, uh, you know, since World War II and, you know, some other guys that have done that, 
these are the names of the other people that have done it since World War II. Tiger Woods, Jack Nicklaus, Justin Leonard, Hal Sutton, Lanny Watkins, Steve Melnick, Danny Lee, and Ryan Moore, which those two came after Bubba. Um, but pretty pretty crazy list of guys and Jack Tiger. So the, for you, I think for the consensus is you get the Western and the USAM in a summer, you've taken the two biggest uh, of a summer for sure. Right. Two yeah. most grueling tests. Yeah. I mean, they're the, it's like they call the Western, like it's an invitational. So it's like the masters of, of mm-hmm. amateur golf. And mm-hmm. then it'd be like winning the masters in the U S open. And Bubba did it right in a, a major transitional time in amateur golf, which we'll get into in the course of the, the spotlight. Why were you, so when we were talking about doing different spotlight subjects, whether it's the U.S. Open, Women's Open, amateur, you immediately, like without hesitation, you're like Bubba Dickerson. Why? Well, I think people want to know why. I want to know why. Why are you drawn to this? So he wins in 01, and at this point, it's Tiger Mania. And everybody's now looking at young players and who's the next thing. I, at the time, I was in high school. I was a high school golfer. I, I vividly remember watching this USAM. And Bubba had this, because of his name, he hit it long. He had uh, he had red hair. You know, he has, has red hair, I believe. Yeah. He still has red yeah. hair. <laughs> <laughs> um, he had this infectious kind of... Um, aura about him charisma yes and 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 he you know he became kind of a superstar and his his name and and obviously he won those two events and all of a sudden these huge expectations got put on him and and everybody there was a little bit of bubba mania and it and it's kind of crazy because he was in college at the you know he went to florida uh star there they won the uh they won the national championship uh it, Camilo Vijegas was on that team also uh a guy that he played in the in the USAM and beat but uh that he became this star and everybody was the expectations were he was going to be the next big thing um and it's just a story kind of a guy that accomplished a ton of stuff and then it didn't work out for him at the next level. Yeah. You mentioned you mentioned those seven guys since World War II to sweep the Western and the USAM. They've all went on to win the PGA Tour. Steve Mel except for Steve Melnick, also a Florida product, yeah. I believe. Joining Bubba. Melnick and Bubba were the only two that did not win as pros on the tour eventually. Melnick um, has had a pretty long career though. Yes. He finished runner up four times. Bubba really only had one year on the PGA Tour. Um and uh it's it, it's just a crazy story. It's a it's a guy that I'll never forget, and I think I'll, I, I'm sure a lot of listeners will feel that, that were into golf at that time, and whether you were in high school playing golf in high school or college, you everybody knew who Bubba Dickerson was. So part of that resonance and that why that name sticks with you is the first name, and you talked about the charisma. The name matters, right, Bubba? Yes. And I think what's so fascinating here is he was what two years behind the Bubba that we all now associate as like the preeminent Bubba in golf, the two-time master winner, master's winner, Bubba Watson, you know, one's at Georgia, one's at Florida. They don't overlap perfectly, but they overlap. And at the time, 
you know, it's Bubba Dickerson is the one that you'd think is going to have a couple Masters wins or a lengthy PGA Tour career, PGA Tour wins. Not less Bubba Watson, who came out of, you know, he went from junior college over to Georgia. Obviously a very talented amateur player himself. But if there was a Bubba, and they're, they're neighboring right there, right? UF and UGA, if there was a Bubba, it was Dickerson that people predicted would be the one we're talking about as the modern pro. And in kind of similar backgrounds, they both came from rural Florida, not yep. from a ton of means, very self-taught, yep. Um, yep. natural players. And Bubba, Bubba became was great. I mean, he was spectacular as this year and and then he turn he rolls right into turning professional and and then Bubba Watson was kind of a late bloomer you know he he spent years on the Hooters tour and and then you we saw what happened I think the name like you talked about the name mattered Bubba Watson became an overnight superstar when he won the Masters because a lot because of his name and how he played golf. And and Bubba Dickerson had a similar kind of swagger about him because of his obviously his name, but also he he just he was infectious for for the game for those those six months when he was really in the spotlight. And obviously he remained in the spotlight for a while, but but never really amounted to what everybody expected. It's a fascinating Bubba, a fascinating overlap, the two Bubbas. Okay, so for this spotlight, we were joined by some guests. Bubba Dickerson himself hopped on the phone. Talk about, you know, his amateur career, the run-up uh, to that summer of 01, his growing up in rural Florida. And, and so we're joined by Bubba Dickerson. We're joined by Colin Sheehan who I would argue is maybe the authority on the United States amateur. He wrote a book, the United States amateur, the history and personal recollections of its champions. It's a three volume work on the USAM. He's also the uh, head golf coach at Yale university and uh, a co-founder of the outpost club. So very in, in golf still. So we have and Steve Paramore as well, who lost to Bubba in the match play rounds of, of this U.S. amateur at Eastlake. So let's get to uh, Colin kind of framing where Bubba's summer felt. So it's, it's up there. It's not quite Ryan Morris summer of 2005. It ain't who likes winning the most. Everybody likes winning. It's the one who cannot stand to lose is the one that's going to be the best. And that was Bubba Dickerson, who, as you can tell from the accent, hailed from the South. Uh, his name is Benjamin Gordon Dickerson. It was He came from a one-stoplight town in northeast Florida called Hilliard. I found this uh, description amazing. Orlando Sentinel writer Steve Elling described it as nestled somewhere in the scruffy palmetto bushes between the Jacksonville Airport and the Georgia State Line. And as you can imagine, it was not exactly a golf hotbed. Oh, uh, well, Hilliard doesn't have golf. <laughs> so, like, yeah. one wonder of light towns. Um, but uh, I, I would say I grew up more in the Nassau County area. So, um, I uh, would go play golf in Callahan and turn in Beach a lot, which Callahan is just south of Hilliard. Uh-huh. And, um, and there was a course there called Deerfield Lakes. It, it's recently closed down in the last <clears throat> year or two, but. That's basically the course I grew up on. It's just a little muni track, you know, but it was fun to play and the people were nice and I could pretty much just live out there during the summers and no one really cared, um, which is what helped me get to where I got to. 
Bubba's dad got him into the game in uh, rural Northeast Florida. His dad, Bubba, told us himself, enjoyed gambling on the course, the pool table, and that's how he sort of his introduction to the game. Uh, you know, it wasn't his first sports, Bubba's first sports passion, though. Like a lot of Southern kids, he played baseball. He was quarterback in football. And, and like we've seen, though, with some of our other spotlight subjects, like David Duvall, Hal Sutton comes to mind. You know, there's an issue with team sports for Bubba, especially given where he came from, this small town. And growing up in the small town, I, I hated losing. And when, when you're in a small town, you know, your teams aren't as good as the, the bigger town, basically. And so we, we did a lot of losing on a lot, a lot of those other sports. And so that's kind of what gravitated me towards golf because it's all on me. And I could, uh, you know, I, I, I decided my own fate on the golf course, whether I won or lose. So that's kind of what got me got me towards golf but I started out just playing golf during the summer and then uh when I was uh 13 years old I think I qualified for uh, maybe like the Optimus Junior or something that was down at Doral that year um and I went down and I won that by like 13 shots and that's when I I kind of realized uh, I might be pretty good at this I guess <laughs> So he was, he was a strong kid. He proved, you know, he, he like uh, Jordan Spieth, was clearly had, had diversified his athletic interests. He was into karate and uh, baseball and football. He's a, you know, sort of typical kid of the South, played, played everything and uh, didn't, did not um, uh, specialize in golf until fairly late. Um, clearly an athlete. Um, strong kid, a football player's kind of mentality. You're right that he hit it. He was long for his area. He was hitting a cut. So he played a lot of other sports and, and golf started to get mixed in. But his junior golf experiences were, you know, far from privilege. He didn't have Roman numerals in his name. It wasn't a uh, cats in the cradle situation as some of our other familiar names on this podcast. Uh, he and his brother, Bubba and his brother, his brother's name was Chu. So that's a good sibling duet, Bubba and Chu. They would uh, get dropped at Deerfield Lakes, and, and he said he would just stay there all day. They had no practice facilities, really, so they would just dropped off at the course, only playing in the summer, and just play, really, from morning until night uh, in the summer heat. And But for competitive events, you know, those reps were minimal relative to some of those Roman numerals and the other junior standouts. Usually, I, I was allowed to pick, you know, between five and six tournaments during the summer. My dad would let me pick that were not local in Jacksonville area and go play. So, so I had to pick really, you know, really uh, carefully. <laughs> yeah. And then when I picked them, I had to be ready to play so that I could you know, excel like the other kids that were ready to play all the time. You know, I laugh like, you know, I was teaching some kids here in town and it's crazy how many tournaments these kids playing nowadays. I mean, when they're growing up, they're playing like three tournaments a month. I, I mean, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. They would actually do that. It's crazy. So Dickerson, he went to Hilliard Middle and then senior high school until eighth grade. They didn't even have a golf team. So his father asked officials, you know, to let him play in district tournament. They allowed him to. He beat everyone, one low medalist, but he couldn't go to states because he was not in high school yet. So he's denied an invitation from getting out of districts. And, and so he was dominant in, in high school. He eventually had to 
switch high schools because you know the original Hilliard High School didn't even have a golf team, so he moved and played a Callahan golf team, uh, high school golf team. And as for non sort of high school golf, elite tour pros will talk about the impact AJGA had on them growing up and that national circuit. Bubba has quite a different perspective on that. I think I was probably one of the only kids to be an AJGA All-American without hardly playing an AJGA term. <laughs> I won every big event one year that wasn't AJGA. Like I won the Future Masters, the Optimus International, the Maxfly PGA Junior in the same summer and was a first team AJGA All-American. I might have only played like one AJGA event. <laughs> so it was pretty... uh pretty interesting that's amazing why didn't you play those ajga events completely to be honest with you i think they made my dad mad because they wouldn't let me in early on <laughs> so you know him being stubborn he just said we're gonna play every big tournament that's not ajga and see what happens and then and then i ended up playing some ajga events that next year i played a lot of them actually but uh just the you know maybe the stubbornness because he didn't feel like they were being fair on how they let kids in tournaments and stuff like that you know so what was um, unfair about it just who they let in or why they let people in yeah just you know they would let kids in that i was beating in a lot of local events and they would let them in tournaments and not me and he was like he's beating these kids every week in his local junior tournaments in jacksonville they're getting in your tournaments and he's not why you know and, and i don't think they can really answer why I was going to say, and I think that's one of the reasons why they got such a better, I mean, I think they have a much better system now. You know, you kind of earn your way in with these stars and stuff like that based okay. on your performance in other events. So I think they do have a lot better system now than the, I, I really think it used to just be whoever they, they decide to let in tournaments. His junior golf successes obviously got the attention of many colleges, and he got an offer from Florida. His family was a Gators family, and that was a dream come true. He jumped at the chance to play for you, you legendary UF coach Buddy Alexander, who was also a U.S. amateur winner. Uh, he came right on the heels of Steve Scott, you know, the infamous head-to-head uh, -head match, infamous amateur vic, uh, glory of his own against Tiger Woods, and, and overlapped then at UF with Camilo Vajegas. But our team was our team was interesting. You know, we uh, my freshman year we we didn't do very good. We actually missed uh, nationals for the first time. And I think Coach Buddy's uh, I don't know. It might have been the whole time he had been at Florida, he'd never missed or something, or he had made like 15 straight or something um, NCAA's. And and we we missed that year making it NCAA's, even though we weren't that bad of a team. I mean, we I think we were winning some tournaments and stuff, but just we just didn't play good at the end of the year and so uh we had a lot to prove going into 2001 and i think a little bit of that had something to do with my summer you know i was out to prove something as a player and a gator and that was in the 2000 summer and then going into 2001 we worked our butts off to uh to not not miss ncaa's again let's put it like that it was a it was a long year Till, till we got to that NCAA that year and uh, qualified and ended up winning. But we, we definitely worked our butt off to, to get there. Bubba never won a college tournament. It's interesting. His coach wouldn't, would never let them know where they stood individually. And then on his very last tournament, he, Camilo drains like a 40-footer on the last green to beat him by one. He was long for his area. He was hitting a cut. So he was, with that ballada, he was able to sort of take that same advantage Nicholas had of 
not simultaneously hitting it far, but also fading it, which is a winning formula. Fairly self-taught, didn't, I think also all things considered had very little instruction. Seems like Buddy Alexander has, he learned a lot under him. It was a very competitive program. It's very, it was very Darwinian that your spot for the next tournament was based on the result from the previous tournament. That's a cutthroat. Not everybody would love that, but that's what the best programs do. And I, and he was, he was uniquely positioned to play well in that sort of intense heat. Of, I mean, just it's 95 degrees at the heat index here in Connecticut. I mean, just imagine what it's like down there in East Lake this week. Um, just being able to, just being able to, uh, survive is not easy it's, it's, it's it can't be taken for granted and i think uh, he seemed to have just played well down the stretch in every one of his every one of his matches bubba was clearly one of the best amateur players in the country and in contention for the esteemed revered walker cup uh he was on the bubble and his summer didn't get off to the best start but I was hitting the ball really well and just not scoring. And actually, the Porter Cup, the uh, the week before the Western Am, I played, and I, I think I finished. I mean, I might have finished almost dead last. I I scored so bad, but I was actually hitting the ball really well in the range. And um, and I wasn't even going to play the Western Am. Uh, I went to Michigan to see a friend, and uh, and I had stayed with him before for some other tournaments and I was going to stay with him and play the Western Am. And when I got there, I told him, I said, uh, his name is Dr. Blix. And I told him, I said, I don't think I'm going to play the Western Am. I'm playing so bad. I mean, I just finished almost last at the Porter cup. I'm probably not going to make the Walker cup team. Now they're going to probably pick, you know, the other guys that they were kind of in the running for it. There was about three of us. I think it was me, Eric Compton, and um can't remember who would have been the maybe Nick Cassini at the time. Um and, and they did. They went ahead after the Porter Cup and picked uh Eric and Nick. And normally they wait till after the Western Am to to make those final picks, but they didn't because I guess I played so bad. So they picked them and and I was just thinking I was gonna go home and practice and get ready for the USM qualifier. <clears throat> and uh my buddy, Dr. Blix, said, let's go to the range. He watched me hit balls, and I was striping it. And he said, well, you're definitely going to play. You're hitting it great. And I said, no, you don't understand. I've been hitting it like this all summer but not scoring that good. And, and he's like, well, just just go play a practice round. So I did, and I played really well and loved the golf course. It was at Point of Wood still at that time. They hadn't moved to Western Am yet. And, uh, and so I ended up playing and winning. So – uh, needless to say, I, I think I owe a lot of that to Dr. Books talking me into staying and plucking. I mean, this kid had his, you know, every summer, it seems, in all those U.S. amateur years, somebody, like, wins three or four of the big events, and they're just the sort of dominant guy. They, Whether it's Justin Leonard or Lanny Watkins or, of course, Tiger. And that summer, almost essentially right after the decision was made to select that team he wins the two most important individual crowns in all of golf i mean it, it it's it doesn't make any sense to me that they didn't wait to crown to, to leave a spot for a western amateur that year he he claims he played so poorly at the porter cup that that just cooked his chances he was sort of making a tiny swing change and he played so poorly there it kind of 
knocked him off the list. But I think that was the last time the USJ has ever had the had the Walker Cup in front of the amateur. I mean, now these days there's a spot essentially reserved for the finalists and the you know the two finalists really. And we lost that, and that was the second that was the first time that Europe ever retained the cup. And we obviously didn't have our best. We didn't the US US didn't have its, its best team out there because. Bubba would have, he, was, he essentially was the number one amateur in the world by the middle of August. On top of that, Bubba had been a finalist in the Pub Links the year before and then, had a, and then had a great spring with the Florida Gators, was kind of their anchor in a national championship. He, he got overlooked. And that, what I don't also understand is uh, the USGA moving the dates up at Ocean Forest to sort of essentially uh, eliminate uh, week in the field at the Western, it, it, it wound up, there wound up only being about two players who played. There's only about two Walker Cuppers in the field. It was just, they've turned, the Walker Cup has so much pageantry now, Fortnite of, of a movable feast of playing great golf and going on and on and on for two days of competition. Cause that's just, it's too short. They want to turn that thing into a, a, a month long cocktail party with, with blazers and ties and congratulating each other. And so I don't think they they wound up undermining the Western. I would say the Western Am is probably the, the toughest just because there's so many cuts that you have to keep playing good to keep making cuts. <laughs> and then you go to match play. But, um, but it's, you know, I mean, I think when you're that age, when you're younger, you don't really notice the, the length of the tournament as much as maybe I would now. So Bubba takes the 99th Western Amateur, first week of August. He's the co-medalist in the stroke play. Uh, he never went past the 17th hole, and this was his first major victory as an amateur in match play. Never went past the 17th hole. He beat the likes of Boyd Summerhays in the match play round, obviously a famous coach from Utah, Tony Finau's coach. And then in the finals, he whooped up on Trip Keeney, another famous amateur family, be- defeating him 6-4. and four. So he takes the Western amateur, but uh, it's off to the U.S. amateur first, though. First. He has to actually qualify. What I find amazing is, uh, as you know, he 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 wins the Western, the, the most grueling tournament of all, and has to catch a flight home and has two hours sleep, and he has to he's qualifying for the U.S. Amateur the next day. I'm, um, I guess they have a better system now of awarding exemptions. Um, the idea that he had to. The Western Amateur Champion had to sort of had to earn his way into the U.S. Amateur is kind of absurd. Yeah, it was a lot of the U.S. Am qualifiers in the South and in Florida. They're always 1818 because they just between thunderstorms and the size of the field. It's they don't really do 36 whole one days down there in the summer. It's too long. It's too hot. Um, not counting making a, a traveling lineup at Stanford. The last tournament Tiger Woods ever had to qualify for was the 1994 U.S. Amateur, and he and his father, he went, he wins the Western Amateur, and he and his father luckily catch the last flight home out of Chicago back to L.A., and he quali- he has to play in a 36-hole medal the very next day, um, you know, a f- future champion of that very event. Um, there must have been there, some, eventually, you know, the USGA, eventually, um, you know, logic prevails. It, it, it perhaps you know just imagine tiger or bubba for example their their flight getting delayed or canceled on a, a summer afternoon e- evening thunderstorm which is entirely possible in august and 
and literally missing out. The weird thing is back then, I won the Western Am, and that Sunday night, I had to fly to Orlando to qualify for the USAM. I still wasn't in. You know, now, you know, based on your amateur world ranking and stuff like that, you can get straight into the USAM. But back back when I won it, that wasn't the case. So um, the only, only people I think that were exempt in were, you know, all, all the Walker Cup members from both teams. Um, and I just missed out on that team that year. Um, and, uh, and I'm trying to think, and then I guess if your performance in the USAM in the past would have gotten you in, but, uh, but most everyone had to still qualify. There were no exemptions really into that tournament. Yeah. Well, actually it was, uh, it happened to be, uh, uh, 18 hole and then, it was a two-day qualifier, which doesn't happen a lot. But at that time, it was, which helped me a lot because I didn't get in my hotel room until like three or four in the morning. Um, it was a late flight from Chicago to, to Orlando. Got in real late, and then it was at Black Bear, so that's like a you know an hour drive from the airport. You know, so just by the time I got my luggage and everything, I think I got in around three thirty or four and uh had to tee off at 7 30 i think i had the first tee time <laughs> so uh, i just limped around that day but i mean i limped around with a smile on my face because i just won the western ham so <laughs> do, you, do you remember what you shot in, in that first round and uh then the subsequent think, second round i think i shot even or one under and i was probably outside the number by a couple but you know i knew with some rest i'd be ready to go the next day and i was all right, so it was quite a run through August. He takes the Western. He has to actually qualify all the while, you know, some of the most elite amateurs. He's probably maybe the best amateur in the world right now, but the elite amateurs are playing at uh, Ocean Forest in the Walker Cup. And so he arrives at the U.S. Amateur, which is in Eastlake, Eastlake in Atlanta. Hotland. Not the most hospitable place, maybe in mid-August. Uh, some other notables in that 01 amateur, Lucas Glover. A very young Brant Snedeker. Uh, a favorite here, Brendan Todd was in the field. Jeff Quinney. Former USAM champ. A, a he favorite was the, he was the, of yours. He was the defending champion this year. The GB&I team, you know, was coming over from Motion Forest. That, that included Graham McDowell was really sort of the headliner of that team that, that, that had won the Walker Cup. Richard McAvoy was another. Michael Sims of Bermuda, the Bermuda Michael Sims. Isn't he the one who got in with the par three win in Bermuda? Yeah. Um, a, f- a couple other guys who made it to the match play, Nick Watney, Camilo Vajegas' Florida teammate, David Gossett was in the field, Oliver Wilson, DJ Trahan, son of the swing surgeon who beat him, right? He was the one who beat him in the pub links, Bubba in the pub links. Yep. The year before, Big Bill Reavy, Dan Summerhays. A lot of tour pros, and then of course, like Kevin Na, Ty Tryon were two very, very high-profile amateurs at the time. So it was a pretty Bill Haas, a lot of guys. Casey, of Casey Wittenberg, the uh, you know the man who attested to Tiger's drop at TPC Sawgrass. Uh, so it was a, it was kind of this up-and-coming post-Tiger boom set of amateurs and Bubba's fresh off his Western amateur win, his qualifying round where Tryon, Ty Tryon was a medalist at his qualifier. So it's a, it's an interesting venue, an interesting field. The amateurs not shied away from going to Florida 
in the Southeast. And obviously the, the Bobby Jones connection and the Walker Cup being at Ocean Forest. So I, I suspect that was kind of intentionally timed. We t- it's been around long enough now that we, we consider that tournament, that course, pretty a pretty regular sort of usual suspect for competitions. But that in, that, in 2001 was, I think it's, that was its reintroduction to popular culture in golf. I don't think, I don't know what the last tournament before that of significance would have been. May have been the you know the 1927 Southern M, <laughs> but it was and that was built when they renovated it. They they built it for majors and tour events, and uh, I think that course was somewhere along the lines of you know it was long at the, that was long when it was 7,300 yards. That would have been 300 yards longer than Shinnecock and most most. I mean that was sort of a it it got the modern lengthening to it. Um, so that was as difficult a course as any. Fortunately, you have you have the, the entire uh, GB&I Walker Cup team. So you had a, a young Graham McDowell from Portrush. He loses in the first round. He turned uh, professional right afterwards. You know, there, Andy, you're a little too young to remember this, this sort of sensation that was Ty Tryon. Qualifies for the PGA Tour when he was about 18 years old. He, he was in the same qualifier as Bubba, the same local, right? Correct. He was the medalist. Um, you know, both he, Ty Tryon and Kevin Na made what one USGA official dubbed courtesy visits en route to their <laughs> professional debuts. You know, the USGA became very concerned in the, in, around then about, about how the, um, the amateur was this kind of last showing, you know, their sort of final amateur event of, before turning pro, the nature of the sort of fall calendar and the sp- sponsors exemptions and I think that's partially why that's that was the reason that they added the sort of two mid amateur spots because I remember the USGA one year was was going to potentially be embarrassed by having the entire Walker Cup team turn professional like the very next day. There's a couple other, uh, you know, what's interesting in that 2001 is in the previous hundred years, only four 14 year olds had ever qualified for the amateur. The first being Bobby Jones in 1916. But in that year, there were three 14-year-olds in the field. There's also a very young Brant Snedeker in the field who would win the pub links a couple of years later. This was a transition time for the amateur. More and more young players were flocking for the PGA Tour early, and less and less people were sticking around and playing in USAMs. So there were no past champions in this field, and it was clearly changing to a young man's game. Not to mention equipment advances. Uh, we were seeing the full proliferation of the titanium driver, and really the beginning of the urethane ball era was right around this time. It's so clearly it, the Western and the U.S. Amateur, um, especially when they're in hot locations, so clearly a young man's game. And as as the courses you know become seventy five hundred yards. The strength and conditioning programs at these colleges have really uh, have the players are so poised to survive these types of endurance tests that they are. Um, you can just tell the age just kept coming down through the 90s and into the 2000s for the sort of quarterfinalists and semifinalists. Like you can't you can't see it's it's hard for a 40 year old mid amp to be able to put up with seven days of that golf and a you know 100 degree heat. All right, so you could tell, obviously, Bubba's a kid of the South, lived near the Georgia border, and he's playing local. He's not exactly – Eastlake is a comfortable game for him. He's not dropped into abandoned dunes or anything like that. He gets out of stroke play. He goes 69-72 in stroke play. 
And it was just a nice sort of home game for him in Atlanta. As you can tell, his, his baseball team was nearby. His hotel was across the street from Turner Field. And as he got there, the, the Braves began like a lengthy homestand and they kept winning and he kept getting, he and, the, and his friends kept getting uh, cheap tickets every night. As a night, that, what a nice thing to do after playing in the M every, every evening. Apparently the Braves kept winning and they were his team. That's a nice thing to be able to take your mind off off the golf. I, th- I think that's underestimated in, in those types of weeks. You can't just you can't just finish the round and go practice a couple more hours and then hit putts and then hang out. You're gonna drive. You're gonna wear yourself out. So I don't really early on in the match play. I don't think there was a lot of scares. I mean, going into the week, I was pretty relaxed. You know, I like I said. I mean, it was only a week from winning the Western Am. Even then. Um, and and we got a hotel room right next to the um, Braves stadium, um, and so I went to baseball games every afternoon. Stayed real relaxed all week, and it was just a it was a fun week. Um, I don't really remember any scares until maybe some close calls later in the uh, match play, but. I would say the biggest thing was just making it to match play. That's I think that's one of the hardest things with the USAM is making it to the match play part uh, because the two golf courses that you play are usually so different. You know, one's usually not as tough as the other, and I actually started out on the shorter, easier so-called course and played poorly. I mean, I didn't play bad, but a lot of guys were shooting really low on it, and I shot around even par. So I knew going into East Lake, in the stroke play part, I had to have a good round, and I did, and, and made it to match play pretty easily. But, but that was the closest call I had was was after the first round, not playing that great on the easier golf course. Bubba was out of stroke play and into match play. His first round opponent, Steve Paramore, joined us. Steve is the assistant superintendent of the Ashland School District in Ohio, and gave us a sense of what it was like to encounter Bubba during that summer. I had shot 74 at East Lake, par 70 with four bogeys, and I uh, was playing reasonably well. East Lake's just a tough golf course. When I came in and saw that Lucas Glover shot 64 out there, I was like, gee, many Christmas. But uh, then I shot 68 at Druid Hills, par 72. I was at even par, and I, obviously Bubba probably shot that as well, because I think we were right like 30, 31, something like that. I mean, I obviously knew who he was. He he honestly had no clue who I was. His brother was caddying for him. Didn't have a lot of conversations with him other than, hey, you know, you play in Florida. I go, yeah, I play there too. And that was about it. He was completely into what he was doing. I was surprised he didn't wear a glove. And I'm like, holy crap, it's 99% humidity out here. But he really seemed very like a very simple individual. But I mean, he flushed it every time. and. I don't think he made a bogey in the round. I and mean, I think he closed me out four and three. Yeah, I mean, it was just, he was way better than I was, honestly. Everybody everybody that brings it up, I at least say, well, I did lose the guy that, that won. What Bubba did really well that was probably important that week was he, he was reasonably long and you were getting some roll, but, you know, he could shape it either way. Um, and Eastlake does have holes that go either way. Um, and he probably kept it out of the rough and his short game was good. Man, the thing that stuck out to me was no glove. Man, did that. I would, just couldn't believe that people played it in the South without a glove. Um, I'd sweat through three gloves. 
For Bubba, the most pressurized moment of the week came in the semis with an Augusta berth on the line. Yeah, I think I think that, you know, the semifinals definitely more nerve-wracking. Uh, you know, when you get to the final match, you kind of feel like you're playing on house money. Like, hey, even if I lose, I'm getting to play Augusta, you know? <laughs> so, uh, obviously you want to win, but, you know, I mean, definitely the semifinal match was felt more important than the final match, which is kind of bizarre. But, you know, as a kid, you grew up dreaming of playing as a master. So, uh, that um, that's what made, made it so nerve-wracking. So Bubba gets through to the finals, and with that pressure of just getting that master's berth behind him, it, it starts a little rocky, and he faces Robert Hamilton, someone from the other side of the country who came to the amateur in, in quite different circumstances than Bubba. Well, what, one thing I would definitely say about the U.S. Amateur is that this kid Robert Hamilton, you know, basically a fifth-year senior at Cal Berkeley, 23 years old, um, had never qualified for the amateur. Think about how hard it's it's credit to how difficult the sectionals are when there's sort of 70 guys for two spots and one of them is an All-American. So it shows to me that, you know, this kid goes from missing, never getting to the tournament and makes it all the way to the 36 hole of the finals. Um, it goes to show you how how arbitrary it is to sort of get there. Um, how 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 many you could replay the event in so many different ways. Um, I do. I think he was. I think his competitive side came out being down. Um, even though he trailed at launcher, right? He won the last four holes. He played. The, he finished strong in every match. He won the seventeenth hole in every match. I mean, that's to me. That's that shows you that he was gritty and tough. I think maybe my nonchalant, like, uh, you know, um, who really cares now kind of thing kind of got me in trouble to start out with, really. And then, and then you know, some antics by the other player and, you know, getting cocky, thinking he's got me beat, you know, that kind of, kind of uh, got me going a little bit. And, you know, and I fought my way back and ended up, uh, ended up having a good match the last 18 holes. What were the specific antics? Do you remember, or just general cockiness? Is there something that really kind of like whipped yeah. you back, got your mind right back into it? Just the cockiness, I think. You know, just him and his caddy just thought they had already beat me, and the you know we were twelve, thirteen holes in, you know, and I'm sitting here, you know, I mean, he had chipped in like two or three times from like, I mean, he had a horseshoe, you know, somewhere. I'm not sure where, but. Uh, <laughs> You know, he like everything was going right for him too. You know, and I was kind of like, okay, you know, eventually it's all going to come back. I'll get a couple breaks, and you know, it'll be a good match in the end. You won those last four holes in the morning round. Was there some specific shot or some specific kind of change in play that that really sort of kickstarted that, or was it just kind of responding to him? Um. Yeah, no, I mean, I, honestly, I was hitting the ball good. I was probably hitting it better than he was when I was four down. I just, you know, he would be, you know, off the green and chip in, and uh, and I would, you know, be 20 feet and miss, and he'd win the hole, you know. I mean, I, I really think that it just, you know, it finally caught up with him, you know. His heroics just kind of sure. went away, and I won some, some just some holes. Maybe I think I maybe made a couple birdies, but also – he, you know, didn't get a couple up and down that he had been getting up and down or either holing even. Um, 
and that just kind of turned the match around a little bit. So Bubba wins the last four holes of the morning to avoid an early disaster. Something that grabbed a lot of headlines was Bubba made a shirt change. Most people thought it was something with superstition, but he makes a big shirt change, and uh, Bubba talks about it here. (laughs) No, a lot of people talked about it being a lucky shirt. It was just a shirt that I was comfortable swinging in. Um, The shirt I had on before that, it got real wet. You know, we didn't have all the nice tech stuff that – today with the dry fits and all the nice material you know so you know back in the day those old heavy cotton shirts some of them just didn't feel as good as other ones and uh and the one i'd had on that morning just was terrible i mean it was sticking to me in that hot summer you know i mean there's a reason why they call it hot land i think right it's then nip and tuck in the second 18 and bubba gets to the 17th tee one down with two to play so if you guys remember, you've probably been watching the Tour Championship the last few years, and this was before they flipped the nines. So 18 was a lengthy par three, and it was a, just a unique finisher for the USAM and match play coming down the stretch with a long par three as the last hole. So Bubba wins the 17th hole to pull all square. If I hadn't have <clears throat> basically had the same shot the day before, um, you know, I mean, I, I won't, don't want to say I was lucky to get to go to 18 in the semis because it was nerve-wracking as well. But uh, but getting to hit that shot in the semis under the same kind of pressure because, like you said, trying to get to Augusta, I mean, I, I felt probably as much anxiety and uh, nervousness and adrenaline in the semis on 18T than I did uh, for, the, for the final match. And... And uh, there was a back pin. I think I had 235 in the semis, and I hit a three iron, which is, I mean, which uh, I can't hit a three iron that far. I, I just hit it because I was trying to land it on the front of the green and um, and get it to maybe chase up. Well, I hit that three iron, and it flew to the back of the green and went over. And so, <clears throat> so the next day, I had, I think we had like 220 to a kind of middle right pin just below the slope and you know my caddy's like three iron I'm like, three iron I hit three iron over the green the day before you know so I was lucky to know all right well I think I'm just gonna hit four as hard as I can and uh worst case it'll be short because I figured long to that pin would be a harder two putt than being short chipping up the hill and so I hit that four and flushed it and it's about 10 12 feet and uh you know I think I think the being able to hit that shot the day before really helped me because even after I hit the shot, you know, he was trying to figure out what, what club I'd hit, you know, and I think he had a two iron in his hand and he probably hit his irons further than I did. So, you know, yeah, I think that two things, me being able to hit that shot the day before and also having the tee box and hitting a good shot really kind of sealed the deal on that, that hole. Gus had a very good mindset. He, he, you know, he, he never once thought about winning and losing. That is a definitely a lesson uh, I would tell anybody trying to, to win the amateurs. You can't, you go there obviously with the best intentions, but you can't, you can't preoccupy yourself with winning. The golf course is too hard. The, you know, I think he clearly relished um, head to head golf, match play golf. Um, and it, it seems, it seems like, Definitely, uh, I think he enjoyed. I think he enjoyed. He enjoyed not only match play, but 
you know, he, he enjoyed head-to-head competition. So Bubba wins the U.S. Amateur to cap a dominant month of August, taking sweeping the Western and the USAM, beating Robert Hamilton after that early sort of cocky antics, as he said, got him back in it with the uh, then stone shot at, at 18 on the par three. I thought it was amusing. I found an article where the, the, the manager at Deerfield Lake said they started setting off the bad weather siren back home. And people kept calling up the course, like, what the hell is going on? What's going on? They're just blasting the siren. And the manager goes, well, Bubba won. He'd won the USAM. So it was this really proud moment for a small town in Northeast Florida. And 2001, it's a banner summer. He's the best amateur in the world. He clearly starts to get in his mind that professional golf is next. He has that master's berth, though. The allure of that master's berth, maybe down the line, keeping him amateur, amateur. But this is when he really starts to think pro golf is now the immediate future. I had kind of made a decision that I was going to um, turn pro after Augusta. So not only does he, he decide he's going to turn pro, but he actually withdraws from Florida in January. He doesn't even, doesn't even start that spring season. That ruffled a little bit of feathers, found articles where, you know, elder Florida players like DeMarco were a little puzzled by it. Um, he doesn't even attempt to defend that national title. He's just getting to April to turn pro. Um, and... and that's when he just bails out on Florida. You always strike when the iron's hot. It's never hotter than after, immediately after winning. And the irony is this sort of master's invitation in, in some ways is uh, can sort of derail start of a pro career. I know it was sort of a curse for Tom Scher, who lost to Justin Leonard in 92. He kind of was a senior. It was after a senior year at Chapel Hill. He's a runner-up. Now he's going to wait till the following April. You know, that, that sort of gap with not much to do in the fall and the winter. And then you don't, of course, because you're so starstruck at the Masters as an amateur, you usually miss the cut. And then you turn pro and, and suddenly your agent's telling you that there's, you're sort of, the offers aren't quite as, as much as they would have been in, back in August. That's an interesting question, though. I mean, I feel like unless, you're, unless you are like 22 and you finish college, the amateur champion should should try to stick around and defend. It's happened so rarely. I can't tell a kid can't tell a kid what to do, especially these days. Or look how good you can be at the age of twenty two now. I think I know the, the sort of lure of a the lure of a Walker Cup is something that you would you normally keep someone around. Plus, plus the the Masters, U.S. Open, Open Championship. I mean, I, I don't know if, if there's an, as much value to being the winner of the silver medal at the Open Championship as the low amateur. To me, that's a really cool honor to make the cut. And they only bring out a few people in these award ceremonies. And it's interesting that it's it's not the runner-up. It's, or it's, 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 it's no more than the runner-up on the pro side. But the uh, low amateur gets, gets special treatment. And I, I, I love that. So as is custom at the Masters, the reigning U.S. amateur champion – draws a tee time with the defending Masters champion, who is a little-known figure by the name of Tiger Woods. Bubba, you know, undeterred, as you can tell. He's a little bit of a character. Didn't seem daunted by the Thursday tee time with Tiger. I had just, you know, won everything as an amateur, so I thought I was probably as good as he was at the time, you know? <laughs> I mean, I was a cocky young kid going in there. Um, and, I mean, obviously going to the first tee, I was really nervous. I mean, his crowds are crazy. Um, 
And he hit a ball so far right, I was like, I looked at my cat and said, well, he's the best player in the world. If he can do that, I can top it now and be fine. With Tiger, Bubba drew on some of the skills he had to develop on that scruffy beauty uh, outside of Hilliard, Florida. So skills and shots, he thought Bubba probably, uh, that Tiger didn't come across anymore on the dartboard tour pro level. Uh, but ones you could use to get around Augusta National, he was using the ground game. And uh, it's kind of this this story reminds me of when we did the Omira spotlight, when Tiger was talking, uh, Omira was talking about Tiger asking him how he hit chip chip shots. It gives a lens into how, you know, eager Tiger was to learn things. And, and when he saw shots that he had never thought of, how it just kind of, uh, you know, got him really interested in players and, and the shot they're hitting. Yeah, he was great. Um, you know, I mean, I I, uh, I played pretty well. Um, I shot 78 the first day, but that was with a double on eight, a double on both par threes on the back. So, you know, really I played pretty solid overall. You know, um, I just didn't score very well. And then, uh, and then the second day, uh, I was three under through 10 and we got rained out. I think I was inside the cut when we got rained out. And then I... We came back at like 7.30 the next morning on Saturday morning to finish from 11 in, and I ended up playing those last few holes two over okay. and shooting one under and missed the cut. But but it was great. I mean, I hit some good shots. And I hit some pretty cool little chips around there. I like At the time, I, I hit a lot of bump and runs, and I would bump it into banks, and then, and then it would land on the green and like really spin a lot. And, uh, and he was pretty impressed with some of my chips. He kept kind of talking about them to me a little bit uh but those were shots i learned at the muni track i grew up on because you couldn't fly it on the green you had to figure out it you you didn't get a good enough lie to hit normal chips so you had to learn how to like skip it in there and bounce it through the uh through the uh rough and stuff like that so i was i was pretty good at those shots when i was younger So Bubba impresses Tiger with his short game at the Masters. Uh, he misses the cut, however, as he narrated, and but he follows through with that decision to turn pro. It's it's an easy one for him, even though he's foregoing that exemption in the U.S. Open, exemption into the British Open as the reigning U.S. Amateur champion. But the motivation was pretty simple. I mean, one honest truth was money. I mean, <laughs> I was offered a lot of money to do that. In talking to us, Bubba referenced the recent PGA Tour University multiple times, saying had that existed when he was at Florida in that, that in-between phase, he would have not have turned pro uh, and dropped out that, that January spring semester uh, after his USAM win. But he did run into some conflict with the parties that offered him some of that motivational uh motivational carrot to turn pro. Some of those parties that offered him that cash uh, quickly created conflict. Just because you sign for something doesn't mean you get it. Let's put it like that. I ended up in an eight-year lawsuit um, and ended up winning because I, I was off for something to turn pro and they didn't honor it. So um, just because you sign something and you believe you're getting it, don't don't make decisions based on that. So can you, you say know, who that was with? I would like people. Uh, I can't, and they're not okay. really even around anymore. Okay, you know what I mean. Gotcha. So, Okay, that's a good uh, cautionary tale. And because of that, I, I, I won a lawsuit, but I really didn't win anything. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, 
when people bankrupt a business, you don't get anything out of it, even if they lose to you. So um, I learned a lot about the law. Um, and so, you know, would it's you just s- a bad deal. Okay. What did you say? Would you say that impacted the start of your professional career? Or was that more later on that that became an issue? Was that like a stressor for you early on as a pro? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it over eight years, I mean, it started, uh, my, basically my second year as a pro, basically the way my deal worked, I got my first year up front, which they paid that. And then when the second year came due, that's when they decided for every reason they weren't going to pay my five-year contract I signed with them. So, um, you know, and then over the process of, you know, just eight years, it just, you know, I mean, it seemed like every time, you know, things would start getting to normal, you got to go somewhere for a deposition or something, you know, or another court hearing or, you know, it's just like it was never ending, you know. So, yeah, I would say 100% it affected it. Drawing on some of that range of sports, he grew up playing football, basketball, baseball, other sports. Uh, he drew on it when he talked about the process of turning pro in golf. He seemed to have a little sort of antipathy towards the system of turning pro, where he was the number one amateur in the world. It just felt like he was should have been a number one draft pick in NBA or NFL. Um, it, relative to other sports, he felt the award should have been greater for that amateur success. And uh, it's clearly a sort of a sore spot for him still. Well, I mean, when I turned pro, I was the best amateur in the world. I mean, I would have went straight if I was in any other sport, I'd have went straight to the, to the, you know, to the top of the, whether it be, you know, NFL or whatever, you'd go straight, straight into the professional playing the best. Right. Yep. I mean, you wouldn't have to work your way into it. You would go into it. I wouldn't have to go to Q school. I would have been given a card, you know, technically, if it was like other sports. Do you, do you think there should be some reform there? Obviously, you, the the PGA Tour college program is like a first step in, in pointing that way. Do you think it should be more drastic? Um, I mean, obviously, like this last PGA, we saw a ton of young college just recently, you know, done with college kids in the top 10 of the tournament. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, yeah, of course I do. I mean, I, I think you know, it's it's like any other sport. You know, I mean, I, I mean, I think that you should get rewarded based on your college career and your amateur career. And I really don't think that you you get rewarded for it. I mean, and you know, and I understand a lot of the older guys' stance. I mean, I even have kind of thought about it, but I didn't. They always say, but I didn't, I had to do it this way and I had to do it. Yeah. Okay. But I mean, things, things get better, right? I mean, if you were in that situation, wouldn't you want it to change for the better? I mean, that's changing it for the better would be, you know, the top. And I think with this new program, they have it, it it will help at least a little bit, you know, give them a a way to get out there. You know, I think there's a lot of guys who, who, could maybe make it but don't have the money to make it or you know maybe didn't quite have the amateur career to get the backing behind them to chase professional golf but if they could be you know an all a first team all-american in college or something and get some status then maybe they can go straight in and have a shot at, at making it then you know i mean i just think that it's still a little bit of an expensive sport based on trying to play professional 
and even as a junior or in an amateur. The only negative would be is if I had to do it over again, I would have stayed in school and not accepted, you know, um, not turned pro so early. Okay. That would be the only negative is, is I would have probably, you know, still been in school if I hadn't had that great of a summer. <laughs> All right, so he turns pro, and it's an uphill battle. But one thing we kind of didn't contemplate when we first started out is this time, this exact time he turned pro is a favorite subject of yours, Andy. And he kind of played, he gave you a meatball over the middle with his his answers on what was going on when he turned pro and during this amateur run. Yeah, the Pro V1 came out in November of 2001 at the Las Vegas (laughs) tournament. There we go. It changed the game, and especially for a player like Bubba, who, as as it was hit on earlier in the USAM section, he hit he bomb he hit a high bomb cut with the balada, and the way he hit it, he hit, he was longer than everybody. So he, he gave you some music to your ears. Well, I actually the the weird thing is before the ball changed in two thousand one to the Pro V, I was really long. Because I launched it, I launched it high with no spin, with the blot of ball, so I could hit it way further than a lot of people. With the new technology, I haven't really gained much. Whereas other guys are hitting it a lot further, because you know, you take a guy like, say, a guy like Cameron Champ. If you put him with the old stuff, that his ball would just spin up in the air and go nowhere. You know, whereas now with this new equipment, he can swing as hard as he wants. And they can dial a driver and golf ball into where it launches right and with no spin, you know. So I think that was the big thing is I had figured out how to hit that old ball with no spin and it would go a long way for me. Um, I don't know that I necessarily had a a really high club head speed. I just had the right dynamics that that a lot of us didn't even know about before TrackMan days back back then. Um, and, And I've come to realize that now you know just with all the technology that that was why i was hitting it further and you know almost everybody's because the way that i hit the ball i was i was launching a high with no spin which is the optimal way to hit a golf ball as far as you can it was a choice between a ball that was soft and spun and or a ball that was went further and was rock hard and then one summer there was suddenly a ball that did both and it was like black magic you're like this isn't it defied it defied like you know a 50 year 50 year old rule of, of having to choose one or the other and having to you know play to its strategic advantages all right so he turns pro right after the masters he goes you know he's this hot shot amateur he gets some sponsors exemptions doesn't have a card yes yet but it doesn't go great with those exemptions in that o2 season after the masters yeah it, his first start was actually at Greensboro which is okay. this week also. Um, he fit, he missed the cut there. He finished T42nd in New Orleans, which actually ended up being the best finish of his first year as a professional. Um, Memorial 74th, a bunch of missed cuts in there. Uh, really didn't crack an egg that first year on the sponsors' exemptions. And didn't, you know, just didn't go the way he expected it to go. It, he didn't ride that momentum into, you know, the the great way to get the card right from the sponsor's exemptions. Yeah. And, and so he doesn't get the card off the exemptions, doesn't get out of Q school in 02. He plays actually the European challenge tour in 03 Hooters tour in 04. 
uh, nationwide tour in 05. So like the Q school, those, that first round of exemptions was a big first shot. Doesn't get out of Q school until 05. Uh, he, in his rookie year is 06. In that Q school, I thought it was interesting. JB Holmes, Pace Carr, uh, was part of his Q school class. Uh, Garrigus, Robert Garrigus, also a fellow rookie. And Jeff Overton, recent subject of Milk Carton Monday, also out of Bubba's Q school. So 05 is the first time he really gets out of Q school. 06 is his rookie season, um, four years after he plays that Masters. What are you doing? Oh, six. He, he gets a little bit of traction on tour. It yeah. kind of carries over the success of Q school. He had, he had a decent, he had some decent weeks and he had one yeah. really great stretch. He, he, he played four straight events. Uh, he finished T five at the Buick, uh, championship T 21 at the Western T 10 at the John Deere and then T 24. So four straight top 25s in the middle of Oh six. He also had a T seven at the fries and, uh, a T18 at the the Tucson tournament, but you know he didn't do enough. I think he just ended up with conditional status the next year. He didn't he didn't do enough to keep the full card. Yeah, 06, 07 was like really the only time he had full uh, not full but had tour status. He goes back to nationwide in 08, 09. Uh, his one win, his pro win, was the Chitty Matcha, a favorite of ours, another favorite of ours, Chitty Matcha, Louisiana Open in 09 on the na- nationwide tour. So that is when he, he got a win. He got a professional win. It was just a lot of back and forth. Well, a lot of back. Just two years up on the PGA Tour. Um, I thought it was interesting. He played the he qualified for the 2011 U.S. Open, and that is the only major championship he's played outside of that amateur Masters. It's and it crazy. came almost a decade after. And he gave oh. up two exemptions. You know, who who would have had the after right. the, after he wins the USAM the over under on on him being you know two and a half majors when he had exemptions into three majors. Yep, I, I found an article where he was playing the Kalamazoo Country Club Invitational with that uh, Doctor Blix he referenced as the one who kind of pushed him into that Western Am in the summer of '01. Uh, that was recently, I think, 2018. The Invitational Country Club Invitational. Uh, I texted with him a little bit after we recorded, kind of where is where is he at right now? He said he was playing full time when COVID hit. Uh, he's teaching some, he's living, living in Fernandina Beach. I don't know if I pronounced that right. Fernandina Beach. Fernandina. Fernandina Beach, which is the same county where he grew up playing in Callahan, Hilliard. Um, so he's teaching a little bit, trying to play full time again. Uh, he said his game was getting really strong and doing mini tour stuff, uh, trying to get a few KFT starts before uh, the pandemic hit. So it, that that is sort of, the professional career. It was not, you know, that 01 summer was really the highlight, right? He had the 09 Chitimacha win. He played in a 2011 US Open, and that's sort of been it. Yeah, it's it's been a, kind of a disappointment. I I think I think who knows though? Maybe he becomes that Jim Herman type player where he he gets his card finally and and has a late career resurgence that's one of the great things with golf is that he's only 39 years old right now so the professional career has not been what was expected it's not done I don't think the story is over but but it's not been what was expected coming out of that summer of 2001 but as is the case kind of we've seen this right now maybe with Jordan Spieth and we remember that podcast with Michael Clayton on the the big five of Euro tour where uh Seve's brother talks about Seve's best golf was maybe played when he was 15 or 16 
in Spain, even though obviously Seve went on to legendary feats after that. Um, but for Bubba, his best golf may have come at a young age and sort of set these heavy and unrealistic expectations. Now, those expectations may have not been met, but it doesn't take away this summer of 01. And that's why, you know, which is worthy of this spotlight. If you're not that dominant, you're not getting a spotlight here. So I think what came after in the pro career may have not lived up to expectations, but what happened in that summer is still worthy of a retrospective and reflection. I think it just summarizes golf perfectly, too. Some days you have it, some days you don't. It was always tough to talk to the guy. Even in, I interviewed him in 04, and I knew already that he had this sort of, he he had, um, he had a regret already. It wasn't working out. His pro career hadn't taken off. He was, sometimes when I interviewed the, the amateur champions, Sam Randolph and others, they, they come around to this idea they're, they're, they're proud that they want it. It's not a curve. It's not, it's, it's not, but they do go through some period where you don't almost too much expectation is put upon a person who wins the US amateur. It's like, it's, it's still associated with like Jack Nicholas and Phil and tiger. And it's almost like you're anointed, you're instantly anointed the sort of a future number one player in the world. Um, when you also could have just had a really good week and and squeaked by the qualifiers or a couple of matches, or you're just one of you know 30 really good players who are going to turn pro that year, and not some, um, not the sort of you know runaway best player because you know there's years when that does happen to Justin Leonard and Phil and and others, um, but it's. I feel like um, it almost calls it, it almost calls too much attention on someone trying to suddenly turn pro and get out there. They're not. They're not. It's same. It's kind of what happened to Justin Rose. You're almost. You can't. You can't just kind of sneak up on people. You're. You're a notable. I think I remember Bubba mentioning that he remained a notable on sort of leaderboards for a while just by being the U.S. Amateur champion, uh, no matter where he finished. He's not the first person to play the best golf of his life when he was 21 years old. Yep. And uh, it's not, it's, sometimes it, it comes across as being easy. Um, I can imagine what it's, I, I can sympathize with that type of, that type of letdown of reaching sort of the mountaintop of amateur golf at at a young age and then realizing that the next hill is five times higher (laughs) next mountain is dwarfs it 